by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing the case of Melissa Lucio, a Texas woman who uh, may be facing the death penalty after being wrongly accused of killing her own daughter. Also going to be touching on the history of the Organization of American States in Haiti and going to be talking about uh, a new book breaking down the reality of the concept of identity politics and uh, sort of the position it has in the popular consciousness. And as always at 320 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, last week, 78-year-old Carl Bunchen was executed in Texas for the June 1990 fatal shooting of Houston police officer James Irby. Now, Bunchen did, in fact, commit the crime for which he was found guilty and sentenced to death, but he had been on death row for 30 years. As he aged in prison, he developed multiple ailments, including hepatitis, vertigo, sciatic nerve pain, and arthritis. He required the use of a wheelchair. During his time in prison, he was only cited for one violent act, and that was punching another prisoner in 1999. Despite his advanced age, poor health, and the absence of any further violence while in prison, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected Bunchen's petition to vacate his death penalty conviction and allow him to spend the rest of his life, which wouldn't have been much longer in all probability, in prison, but not without Justice Stephen Breyer raising doubts about Bunchen's, quote, lengthy confinement and the confinement of others like him, which calls into question the constitutionality of the death penalty. Bunchen was executed. Tennessee was set to execute 72-year-old Oscar Smith last week as well, until the governor called off the execution at practically the last minute due to what he said was an oversight in preparations for the lethal injection. Republican Governor Bill Lee didn't elaborate on what issue forced the surprise 11th-hour stop to the planned execution of Smith, but the fact that evidence has shown Smith not to have been involved in the 1989 killings of his estranged wife and her teenage sons should not be overlooked, but it has been. An expert in fingerprint analysis has discredited the forensic techniques used to connect Smith to the murder scene as outdated and unreliable, and recently discovered DNA evidence from the only murder weapon recovered does not match Smith or any of the victims. Regardless, the Tennessee Court of Appeals refused to reopen Smith's case. The U.S. Supreme Court had denied a last-hour bid by Smith's attorneys seeking to block his execution, so Tennessee will reschedule Smith's execution. In South Carolina this week, Richard Moore was scheduled to be executed by firing squad for the 1999 robbery and murder of a convenience store clerk, a decision he was forced to make how he would be executed because of a new law that was passed by the state in 2021. You see, South Carolina does not have access to the drugs required to conduct lethal injections, but rather than abandoning the death penalty after a decade without executions, South South Carolina passed a law last year to revive two archaic methods of execution, the electric chair 
and the firing squad and give people facing execution the option to choose which archaic and barbaric method they will die by. The state Supreme Court, however, has issued a stay for Moore's execution after a state judge agreed last week to examine a legal challenge brought by Moore, Sigmund, and two other death row inmates who have mostly exhausted their appeals. Their lawyers argue that both electrocution and the firing squad are barbaric methods of killing. The prisoner's attorneys also want the judge to closely examine prison officials' claims that they can't get hold of lethal injection drugs, citing executions by that method carried out by other states and the federal government in recent years. And then Melissa Lucio was scheduled to be executed in Texas yesterday. She was convicted of killing her two-year-old daughter, Mariah Alvarez, based on her so-called confession that she gave after hours of relentless interrogation on the same night her daughter died from injuries sustained in a fall down the stairs two days prior. The so-called confession was a tired and distraught Lucio telling police after hours of interrogation, I guess I did it. A suspect medical examiner's report the actions of a now-disgraced prosecutor and sketchy forensic evidence, in addition to Lucio's forced confession, all point to not only her innocence, but to her victimization by a wholly unjust justice system. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court denied to review her case. However, the Court of Criminal Appeals found that several of the claims raised by her lawyers needed to be considered by a trial court including that prosecutors may have used false testimony, that previously unavailable scientific evidence could preclude her conviction, and that prosecutors suppressed other evidence that would have been favorable to her. So Melissa Lucio's execution has been stayed while those issues are adjudicated. This is a measure of good news for Melissa Lucio. But what about all the people who are still on death row, including her? and otherwise imprisoned in America, a country that will execute the elderly, the mentally disabled, imprisoning people for offenses committed decades ago, well into their old-aged and advanced infirmity while denying them proper health care, and yes, imprisoning and executing innocent people too. This is why we who advocate on behalf of political prisoners like Mumia Abu-Jamal, who just celebrated a birthday Still behind bars on April 24th at 68 years old, whose case has revealed corruption and prosecutorial malfeasance documented in boxes of recently discovered evidence that has yet to see a court of law. Mumia's health has declined, having recently undergone open heart surgery, he's had cataract surgery, and he suffers from cirrhosis of the liver and a severe skin ailment, and for Sundiata Alkoli, and for Ruchel McGee, and for Leonard Peltier, and for Dr. Matulu Shakur, and for so many more. This unjust system is clearly incapable of delivering fair and unbiased justice. It is therefore impossible to expect the same system to act with fairness and sober deliberation when meeting out executions, which is why the death penalty should not exist in a country with such a system. And the system itself that produces so much injustice must be abolished right along with it. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content.
Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Hannah Dickinson, professor and organizer with the Geneva Women's Assembly in Geneva, New York, and the managing editor of Breaking the Chains magazine. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Hannah, earlier this week, uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granted a stay of execution for Melissa Lucio. And, you know, Melissa Lucio, this is a woman who has led a life of almost a uh, nonstop abuse. And uh, she was uh, uh, set to face the death penalty because of uh, the death of her young daughter, which itself uh, was the result of a coerced confession and things like this. And there's just so many levels of uh, abuse and exploitation that are happening within this story. So I was hoping you could help us understand uh, what is happening with uh, Melissa Lucio and how have things been unfolding up until this point? Uh, sure. Uh, Melissa Lucio, um, like um, many women um, who have been criminalized by uh, our justice system here in the United States, um, just as you said, I suffered a lifetime of abuse as a child um, at 16 uh, when she married uh, and then um, when she married again a little later in her life um, at 35 years of age, uh, she was pregnant with twins, um, and um, her two-year-old daughter, Mariah, uh, fell down um, a dangerously steep set of stairs. Uh, You know, Melissa Lucio was terrified of her husband and was afraid to bring her daughter in for medical treatment. Uh, She thought, you know, she looked okay. And two days later, uh, Mariah died. Um, When Mariah was brought to the hospital, you know, that's when um, the justice system really starts intervening in the story. I mean, they had left (laughs) Lucia alone as she was abused, right, for the 35 years leading up to this moment. And, um, and yes, just as she, as you said, I mean, she was in question for hours upon hours upon hours and said 100 times um, in that investigation uh, that she did not kill her child, um, but ultimately um, was coerced into giving a false confession. And um, the prosecutor used that confession to uh, con- charge and ultimately um, Lucio Lucia was convicted of beating her daughter to death, a thing, as she says today and has been saying for the 15 years she's been incarcerated, did not happen. So there's a little of the backstory, um, but I'm happy to talk more about um, what led to finally this day and and really what this means for um, the relationship between our criminal and justice system and the incarceration um, of women. Yeah, that is really important backstory because it is the prosecutor who is now disgraced who argued uh, in Lucio's trial that she was an abusive mother who likely caused the injuries that um, caused her daughter's death. But 
it is that backstory, that evidence, and the excessive, uh, abusive interrogation uh, that coerced, that that came about, uh, th- that resulted in a coerced confession from Lucio that is a part of the evidence that is being reviewed that resulted in the state. So how did that happen? How did the state finally decide, oh, there was something wrong with the prosecution of Melissa uh, Lucio that we need to look at? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned uh, disgraced County District Attorney Armando uh, Villalobos. Um, You know, he is today serving a federal prison sentence for corruption charges and, um, you know, was really intent on villainizing Melissa as an abusive and homicidal mother. But there's no evidence of this. Um, Melissa has 12 children. Um, There is no evidence in thousands of pages of child protective service records um, that she abused them. And and her children have been on the front lines of defending her, um, coming out and saying, right, this, this is not who our mother is. It's time to free her. And um, it's precisely because the court would not allow in um, any of this evidence um, of uh, Melissa Lucio's history of abuse, of um, the conditions of the coerced confession, or even um, these really important details over the years from Child Protective Services. And um, it really is um, the movement for justice and grassroots organizing that has led to this day. I mean, it you know, until very recently, uh, Melissa Lucia was an anonymous woman on death row in Texas. And it's because of advocates um, really in a whole variety of struggles, right? People who struggle against the death penalty, organizations that struggle against the criminalization of abuse survivors, organizations that stand up for Latina women really came together and shed important light on this case um, and brought the kind of pressure necessary uh, to bring about this stay. Now, I want to be clear, this is just a stay. So a court will uh, review the case and determine whether uh, a new trial um, will be permitted. And if so, we can expect that that new trial will include the um, evidence that was really uh, cruelly and unjustly excluded um, from Melissa Lucio's case. But, you know, I don't want us to forget she's been incarcerated for 15 years for a crime that there is no evidence she committed. And so while it's um, important and and an important victory for the movement uh, that this uh, stay happened, um, it has saved her life. it, uh, she still, right, has suffered not only those 35 years of abuse by a patriarchal system and uh, the men in her life, um, but, you know, now has been incarcerated for 15 years by a criminal justice system that supports um, and promotes the same kind of misogyny that, um, that got Melissa in the situation in the first place. Yeah, and it really makes me think about um, the connection between, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, Melissa Lucio is, to me is just sort of one example of how lots of poor and working class women 
are just really put through the ringer and uh, often, you know, wrongly convicted or over sentenced and, and things like that in the U.S. criminal justice system. And so we see this kind of uh, uh, meeting or interplay between uh, misogyny, uh, women's oppression and uh, class exploitation. I mean, I was thinking of um, a situation from a few years ago. It was a little different, but it was this woman in, in Jacksonville, Florida named uh, Marissa Alexander. Alexander, who spent almost six years incarcerated uh, uh, in prison or confined to her house because she was convicted uh, back in 2012 for firing a warning shot at her abusive husband. And this is Florida. So, you know, her her uh, lawyers tried to bring about the, the standard ground case that was found to not have substance. And so, you know, uh, basically she spent this time incarcerated and, and had to feel this um, abuse from the criminal justice system basically for protecting herself and her family. And so, you know, what 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 has happened to Melissa Lucio is I mean, just galling. And what makes it even worse is it's actually not out of the ordinary. It's not. And I'm, I'm glad you raised the case of um, Alexander. And and I think we need to be thinking about um, all of the cases in which um, survivors have been criminalized um, for defending themselves or because the conditions of their abuse are such that um, confessions are coerced or right, their stories aren't believed because they're so deeply traumatized. I think right, important to name here that, um, right to your point, that this is actually normal, um, even as this situation feels extraordinary. 86% of women who have spent time in jail have been sexually assaulted at some point in their life. Um, and, you know, of the women who have been exonerated, um, 70% were wrongly convicted of a crime that never happened. So, right, I think it forces us to ask, just as you have, right, why is it that some women are excessively punished um, with excessive sentences or in the case of uh, Melissa Lucio, uh, you know, sentenced to death? And um, I, I think we've got to talk about the ways that poor and working class women, especially those who have suffered abuse, um, are targeted um, by the state um, right at the same time that they're targeted by their abusers. And and the ways that the court system punishes some people right more than others is deeply connected to um, their status as working class people. It's often connected to their race. Um, and it's really connected to their status of, as women, right? Um, women who have been raped or experienced violence um, in interpersonal relationships. They've received, just like Melissa, no protection from the state throughout that entire experience. And then, right, the state swoops in to punish them um, under recognizing their status as victims and over penalizing them as perpetrators. And this is, you know, related to how patriarchy works, right? We have expectations of women as um, good mothers or docile, right? All of these gendered expectations that are inaccurate um, and have no basis and yet, right, become the framework um, through which uh, we see, uh, again, in the case of Lucio, but she's not the only one, that mothers, 
um, are the ones who face massive criminalization, who face the death penalty in these kinds of cases, not fathers, right? Uh, Melissa Lucia's husband, uh, he was not, right? Despite being the abuser here, he's not sentenced to death. I, you know, it's the state really, really came down on Melissa. And I think we have to understand that's because she didn't register um, in the same ways as a woman deserving of support um, and mental health treatment uh, and a need for safety, right? Instead, um, punished um, because she didn't fit uh, perceptions of what a good mother is supposed to be like. Mm. And, you know, now that her execution is stayed as the facts and the details and evidence in her case are finally getting the review that uh, her case deserved from the beginning, what happens uh, while that is happening? Uh, does Lucio stay in prison? Does she remain on death row? And, you know, how long are is this expected to take? Like, how long is someone going to have to stay in prison, locked up for a crime that all of the evidence says she didn't commit, but also because she is a poor working class woman who herself was abused and there was no protection for her? Yeah, it's it's really, really heartbreaking. And, and this could take, I mean, it really could take a very long time. I, Lucio I, will continue to be incarcerated and separated from, um, you know, her surviving children uh, as uh, this case um, gets considered. And so, yeah, what will happen is that a lower court um, will hold a hearing to consider the new evidence and determine whether a new trial is warranted. So there's not even a guarantee yet that a new trial uh, will happen, um, although advocates are optimistic. Um, then we don't even know if in that new trial, uh, Lucio attorneys will be permitted to present evidence of her innocence that should have been heard um, by a jury, you know, 14 years ago. And um, and I just one other right, really challenging or complicating feature here is, you know, as um, the stay was being considered, Lucia's case was also before the Texas Board of Pardons um, and Paroles. And so I, there was a moment where she could have been granted clemency that would have freed her. But the board said on Monday that because of the stay, it's not making a clemency recommendation, in their words, at this time. So uh, in this really interesting way, yes, a real victory for the movement, a real step forward for the possibility of justice for uh, Melissa Lucio. And yet um, this other possibility, the chance that, um, you know, clemency could be granted is, is now off the table, at least for the time being. Wow. Well, we thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about the history of the Organization of American States in Haiti, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Jamima Pierre, a Haiti America's coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Always happy to be with you all. Absolutely. And we're always happy to have you, Dr. Pierre. And of course, uh, earlier this week, uh, the Socialist Sandinista government of Nicaragua officially left or withdrew uh, from the Organization of American States. And at the time, uh, Foreign Minister uh, Dennis uh, Moncada called the OAS, quote, a deceitful agency of the State Department of Yankee imperialism, saying that Nicaraguans, quote, will not recognize this instrument of colonial administration, which does not represent at any time the sovereign union of our Latin and Caribbean America, and that violates rights and independences, sponsoring and promoting interventions and invasions, legitimizing coups. And just yesterday, we were talking on the show about uh, what this uh, could mean, both for Nicaragua and Latin America moving forward, doctor. But you recently published a piece on the OAS for a Black Agenda report entitled The OAS, or the Ministry of Colonies, talking about the history of the OAS in Haiti. And you even refer to Haiti as as one of the major crime scenes of the organization of uh, American states. And so, you know, help us understand of the history of the OAS and its relationship to Haiti and, and what kind of impact that that's had on the country and its politics. Yeah, it's 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 really um, I, I'm so happy. Actually, I, the people of Nicaragua should be saluted for getting rid of this um, really terrible organization. And, and I hope that, you know, the rest of us could be so lucky right in the Caribbean, um, because the OAS, you know, really started in 1948 as a supposedly as a multi -na multilateral association of um, began with 34 states representing the uh, the, the Western Hemisphere. Um, but, you know, the U.S. provides 60 or more percent of the funding of the organization. And the OAS has always been, um, you know, uh, uh, a puppet or a machine that the U.S. deploys um, against its adversaries in the area. So, for example, it kicked out Cuba um, after the revolution. Um, in 1962, I think, and, and it was the the where the where I get the title for the article is what Castro called OAS. He says this is this is the U.S. Ministry of Colonies, and he's absolutely right. And I think one of the things when when once this and what I say in the article is once this news gets out, people are going to say you're going to get the the regular right wing or mainstream people saying, well, you know, the Nicaragua has no democracy, but the left leaning people are really going to focus on, I think. Um, what's happening in, you know, which is important, right? Seriously, what happened in Bolivia, the OES role there, in Venezuela, um, and, and so on, like recognizing Juan Guaido, for example, and in Honduras. But people always forget Haiti, which is like the original crime scene and the longest neo-colonial experiment um, in, in, in the world, if we have to say. And, and Haiti right now is a de facto, has a de facto, is a, is a de facto colony. And that is in no part in no small part because of the OAS. And, and, and that, and so in the article, I trace the role of the OAS in really curtailing um, Haitian democracy um, and, and uh, removing presidents, um, uh, uh, supporting un illegal presidents and illegal mandates. And they, they've gotten all of that. And this is the, 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 so the role of the OAS through, through Haiti has led to this moment where Haiti is a colony. And so I give very specific examples. So, you know, so in 2010 in particular, and this was the most egregious example after the earthquake where the, uh, the U.S., Canada, and France 
By then, Haiti had already been under military occupation from 2004, when the U.S., Canada, and France got rid of our president, sent him into exile, and then got the U.N. to have a military occupation of the country. In 2010, the U.S. forced uh, uh, elections, and um, and and they funded it. U.S. and Canada funded it, and. There was, and then the the election electoral committee removed the most popular political party from the ballot, which is the Family Lavalas, which meant that the registered voters turnout was absolutely low. Um, I think it was like 71 percent of people stayed away from the polls, and so they put in their 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 candidates, the two right of right wing Miller Maniga, Michelle Martelly, who was you know emerging as the the the, the leader of the. Uh, uh, PHTK party, and this other uh, Jude Celestin backed by the Haitian president. And in the first round of the elections, with very low turnout, um, the first two candidates was uh, made this first round, but the U.S. favorite candidate, Michel Martelly, did not. And so the OAS went in and put together a electoral expert electoral verification team and basically overturned the election results of the first round and put Martelly on the ballot even though it 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 um, he hadn't made enough he had enough had enough votes and so and so this goes on again in 2015 and 16 but it also went back in 2000 and 2000 under Aristide where OAS um, uh, minimized the 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 winning of like 7,000 um, um, parliamentary um, set, minimize the parliamentarian elections so that then the U.S. can go and demonize Aristide. So, I mean, we can go on and on, but I do think this important, this history is important to lay out because people always leave out Haiti, and the OAS has been really terrible for Haitian, um, Haitian sovereignty and democracy. Yeah, this history is important, particularly because of the involvement of a particular president and his secretary of state in uh, invalidating the democratic will of the people in Haiti uh, with putting Martelly on the ballot. So if you could tell us a little bit more about who they were and how they actually did that. Yes. This is Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State at the time. Um, they were angry at Rene Preval, who was the sitting president, because he had signed the pet, you know, it signed on to Venezuela's Petrocarib funds, which was a fund that was set up um, with Caribbean countries using Venezuela's wealth money to to help with development. So what Venezuela did under Hugo Chavez was to say, we have all this oil, oil prices are high, we're going to give you oil. Um, at a very low interest rate, and you don't have to pay us back for 25 years. And then you can use the money that you, the profits that you get from selling oil for social development of your country. The U.S. was furious at Priva, and they really wanted to get rid of them. And so the, 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 the earthquake was a perfect, re, um, perfect uh, way for them to go in and remove him and all his influence, René Preval influence from Haiti. And so this is where they brought in Martelly, who was a, a singer, a, a, a neo-devalierist, who uh, many people know was not even a Haitian citizen. They were able to get him in on the ballot and, and gave him a Haitian passport. And when and when this was going to happen, when the first round happened, and he did, and with, you know, half, most of the people not voting, but he did not make the second round. Hillary Clinton flew from the Middle East, where, you know, the emergence of the Arab-African Spring was happening, he, she flew from the Middle East, they had a meeting, and they threatened to put Preval on a plane 
and sent him to Africa the same way that they did Aristide if he did not agree that Marta Lee would be on the second round of the ballot. This was directly, you know, so before they could get rid of the president, now they realize they could actually use the OES to actually shape the election results instead of like, you know, have being accused of being, uh, being a coup d'etat, they have an electoral coup d'etat. So this was Hillary Clinton's a specific role, and we can find all this information in the WikiLeaks files, um, which were published um, quite a bit by Kim Ives in The Nation, and so on. And so, yes, and so I do think we have to know that this happens under Bush, George W. Bush in 2000. It happened under Obama. It happened under uh, under Trump in 2015. And the OES, and, and then you have the OES uh, secret, uh, uh, secretary, Almagro, who's the right-wing um, um, person who follows whatever the U.S. does. And so, yes, we have to really point out the role of every single president, Democrat or Republican, in deploying the OAS in very similar ways. And the ultimate result is the complete um, collapse of the Haitian state and the loss of sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty insane for an organization like the OAS or um, a country and a government like the United States, these institutions and nations that, you know, claim to care about sovereignty and democracy will actually kidnap uh, a president of a country simply because they don't think he's, you know, sympathetic enough to Washington and then threaten another president with the same thing. And, you know, I just think it really just uh, sort of exemplifies like the kind of gangster politics of the OAS and the U.S. and not them alone. I think also, you know, the European Union, Canada and France as well. When we talk about how um, outside foreign intervention um, has a, a, a central role in the politics of uh, Haiti today, which has had a, a devastating impact on the conditions for the Haitian people who, who don't seem to, you know, be high on the priority list of a lot of these uh, uh, different, you know, uh, uh, organizations and things like this. And I was also hoping, Doctor, that you could uh, say some more about the about the core group and just what that collective is, uh, if you will, and how it sort of factors into this broader piece. Yeah. And that's important because one of the things I wanted to, to point out in this article is 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 to say that the OES is one of many uh, one of many of the so-called international organizations of the international community um, that that really runs the world. And, and so the OAS to me is similar to the United Nations, which consolidated the U.S. coup by sending military and uh, a military force to Haiti and, you know, occupying Haiti till this day, because it's the it's the you know U.N. office in Haiti that that is the that's where you have the core group. And the core group was convened, actually, in 2004, under the UN under the authority of the UN Security Council that led the invasion of Haiti, and mind remember the Security Council had Britain, France, and the U.S., which made these decisions. Um, and then um, it's a self-styled council consisting of diplomats of foreign countries. And so the members of the core group, uh, the membership fluctuates, but it has key members: Canada, France, Germany representatives from the European Union, representatives of the Organization of American States, which is the OAS, and, you know, representatives of the UN. And so this group has never had a Haitian representative. Um, it's, it has no term limit. 
And it determines everything. It determined, for example, after the assassination of Jovenel Moise in July, who would be the prime minister. It issues press releases that makes, you know, that, that makes these decisions. And so the OAS, to me, is really part of a larger group of all these white supremacist Western organizations run by the West in order to, to get their, their say. And, and, that we, and I say this in the article, we can include the IMF, the NATO, we can include the ICC, International Criminal Court, which seems to only prosecute Africans. We can include the WTO, which is, you know, uh, allowing vaccine apartheid. And, and so, so part of it for me is thinking about this globally, putting Haiti at the center of this, because I do think people leave, you're absolutely right, people leave out Haiti, where the truth is they should actually look at Haiti to see how the international community has dealt with Haiti to see what's, you know, what's on the horizon for others. But also to say that the OAS cannot be delinked from all these uh, imperialist Western organizations, including the USAID, IMF, UN, and NATO. So I, I think for me, you know, uh, the decision, Nicaragua's decision is amazing. It should be saluted. And I think, you know, maybe one of these days, these other um, governments in the Caribbean and Latin America will, will, will be as bold and, and, and see that these organizations are not here to bring democracy and security, but are there to uphold U.S. empire. Yeah, and I'm glad that you you mentioned USAID in particular because I think we always uh, also delink uh, the U.S. offering so-called humanitarian aid to countries uh, from the imperialist realities that 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 aid is connected to. So, I mean, how is USAID and this idea of humanitarian aid connected to the kind of abuses that are committed by the OAS and all of its other uh, ancillary and supporting uh, imperialist organizations? Well, they work hand in hand. The USAID is, you know, what they would call soft power, but they determine, you know, they fund who they want to fund and they determine who gets funding in Haiti. They decide if there's going to be a, 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 a grassroots organization that they're going to fund. And that's how they work through. They work through local organizations by funding who they think um, needs to be funded, who's going to uphold empire. And so, you know, we have a lot of what they call orange revolutions, right, funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. The USAID plays a very big role in that. It, it is part of the, it's, it's an extended arm of the CIA and, 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 and the U.S. government. And so humanitarian aid is never about humanitarianism. It's about West, upholding Western supremacy um, in the regions and, uh, and all over the world. And so I do think we need to really be be very seriously considering how it is that all these organizations that have been in the region for 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 decades and the the people and the places in these regions have done a lot worse and so haiti to me it's 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 a sad situation because it's completely lost its sovereignty at the same time you have usaid there um running things and so when you look at these meetings and this is what i'm talking about the pan-european control of the rest of the world you look at meetings whenever there's like a a, a meeting with the so-called haitian government the 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 Ariel Henry, the puppet that's um, the prime minister of Haiti, who's implicated in the murder of Jovenel Moise, but who the U.S. continues to back. You see all his meetings, and in the room, there are always representatives of the OAS, the core group, USAID, and you had like, you know, two or three black people, and then they're surrounded by all the Europeans and the whites, who, and then you see who the white rulers are of Haiti. So I think 
I think we really need to, you know, as, you know, especially what's happening in Ukraine, where we realize with de-dollarization and the, and the falling U.S. empire, we need to actually really think about all these Western-led supposedly international organizations and really dismantle all of them because that's the only way we can have a free world where the rest of us, the majority of, 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 of the earth, can enjoy freedom and democracy. Definitely. In the last couple of minutes, Doctor, I was hoping you could uh, maybe say more about how you see this, all of this impacting the current situation in Haiti. Like you say, uh, Dr. Ariel Henry, current uh, uh, head of Haiti, the country still very much reeling from the assassination of Jovenel uh, Moïse, the U.S. back de facto president. And it just seems like a lot of these dynamics that we've been discussing, uh, you know, the Haitian people are still dealing with it uh, up until this very moment. Yeah, I mean, the, the Haitian people are struggling um, quite a bit because, you know, with with the, the death of, of uh, with the assassination of Jovenel Moise, which has still not been, um, which we know the U.S. knows everything about because they have all they have all the, 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 the evidence, you know, um, the FBI is there and they know who funds it. And we know a lot of us know that, you know, the elite were behind it. But with the death of that, you have increasing insecurity gangs in the um, in Haiti which are you know a poor country and we have all these young men with these you know machine guns and all this military gear and you wonder where they're from and they're being brought in through the privately owned um, ports of the oligarchy so the gang violence has been really terrible um there's unemployment um gas shortages and i don't know if you've noticed like in the from in february January and February, there have been tons of protests, workers wanting to be paid and getting a higher, you know, trying to get higher salaries or getting a higher minimum wage. So things are really terrible um, 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 for Haiti. And it's all really the result of a coup d'etat that happened in 2004, where the, the, there's completely uh, a complete dismantling of the state. And then we see the continuous support for this um, for this um, prime minister that's unelected, but that's completely backed and funded by the U.S. and the core group. And, and it's only a matter of time, I think, before people really protest back. Right now, people are bogged down by hunger um, and crime. But, you know, this, this can only go on for so long, right, for, for people to, to, to take this. And then the U.S. is really playing with fire because what they're doing is upholding this guy and even the local um, uh, uh, oppositional forces, there's a there's an accord that's being done by a group of political parties and um, local groups that have now also fallen into this bourgeois propaganda of trying to like beg the U.S. Um, uh, <laughs> beg the U.S. Um, support for them to 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 like come into power. So you have the traditional political elite jockeying for power. You have the US full control of Haiti under the core group. And and then in the in between that you have the people dying from hunger and and lack of resources. And this is a terrible this is a, a terrible situation that is bound to flare up sooner rather than later and it's going to be at the expense of Haitian people. And that's the other thing that should make us all really angry and sad and demand that the US really remove its boot of um, Haitian people's necks. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Pierre, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the history and political context of identity politics. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Olufemi Otaiwo, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. Professor Taiwo is the author of Reconsidering Reparations and the new book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. Professor Taiwo, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So glad that you could uh, join us to talk about your book, because this idea of identity politics, Professor, is so divisive and causes lots of problems uh, in our political discourse. But you argue in your book, Elite Capture, that the powerful have actually taken over identity politics and divorced it from its radical feminist origins and have turned it into this divisive thing. So I hope you can give us a little bit of context in how you see that they have done that and and what have they done with the, you know, the the radical origins of identity politics uh, that that have have made it uh, such the, you know, firebrand that it is today. Yes. Yeah, so at the start, you have uh, the Combine River Collective, which was a collective of uh, queer, black, feminist socialists. And they coined this term identity politics. And, you know, what they mean by it, or at least, you know, what I take them to mean by it based on reading their statements and, you know, reading the recent interviews that came out with a lot of the founders of that collective is look, we have the right to set our political priorities based on where we are in social life, based on, you know, the kind of position we occupy as the kind of people we are, queer, black women, as people who are oppressed by the system in a particular way, right? So that is a starting point. And once we have understood how it shows up in our lives, where we are in relation to the particular kinds of interlocking systems of oppression that we're thinking about, then we can ask other questions, then we can figure out how to situate ourselves with respect to other people. So, you know, as I understand it, they weren't starting off by thinking identity politics means we're only going to think about our issues and we're only going to think about how we as individuals relate to these power structures. It was, it was just, it was a different kind of thought than that. Zoom a few years later, um, you know, the kinds of things that we associate with identity politics now, you know, uh, you know, we're in DC, right? So we can actually drive down the the street that they've renamed Black Lives Matter and, you know, painted all over the street, um, the words Black Lives Matter. And there's that's just emblematic. That's a good example of this kind of use of the ideas and maybe the aesthetic of identity politics that very powerful people, in this case, you know, the mayor's office uh, in Washington, D.C., have been able to get on board with. So how do we get from, you know, a queer black feminist socialist collective to something that the mayor's office is using while it's supporting policing um, and you know, that the CIA uses to try to recruit officers as far as um, 
talking about identity. And really, for me, you know, it's it's just the same story of how it is that the whole system functions. They got control over identity politics the same way that, you know, the people in power have gotten control over everything else. What it means to have disproportionate power, resources, money is to be able to win kind of contests of circulation about which versions of any idea, identity politics or any other, are likely to get funding or likely to get uh, airtime on the radio or on TV, um, are likely to get research done about them, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is what you outline in your book, Elite Capture, literally how the elite captured the idea of identity politics and turned it into really, you know, a cash cow for them, quite honestly, without delivering on any of the promises of what identity politics actually is, which is advocating for policies that address the particular oppressions of certain groups of people. And in this, uh, uh, in your identifying this process, Professor, you talk about uh, the need to understand racial capitalism. Why is that important in understanding how the elite are able to, uh, you know, profit off of while also uh, completely hollowing out the idea of identity politics for their benefit and leaving us with, you know, empty words and rhetoric? So the term racial capitalism, I think sometimes people hear it and they think, oh, that's just, you know, capitalism plus race. Um, and people kind of respond to the phrase rather than, you know, maybe the analysis or what it is that people are trying to say who have used that term. As I understand it, racial capitalism is just a way of understanding how capitalism has developed, how world history has developed over the last few centuries. And the same things that set up the economic system that we have set up the conditions for life in general, set up who lives where, set up the fact that we live in state systems, that we live in countries, right? That's not always how people were organized. And it set up hierarchies between different kinds of people. And race itself is just one technology, is a is a central technology, but it's just one way that the powers that be have said these people get more and those other people get less. And race has been a, race has been a way of doing that, of organizing who's who. And what's important about that, I think what's helpful about that and why it's clarifying in the case of elite capture about identity politics, which is an idea, not itself, you know, a corporation or a commodity that gets sold, is you know, it points us to the fact that what's being organized is all of social life, right? What's being organized in this top-down hierarchical fashion is the world that we live in, not just production, not just how profit gets made, but in general, who gets to reap the rewards of whatever it is that we're doing together in the economy and in life, and who gets to be disproportionately burdened with the violence and the insecurity that comes from living life in the way that capitalism is organized. And all of those questions are racial, but they are also questions of caste and gender and all the other things that go into structuring how life works. Yeah, and I was actually hoping, Professor, that you could say more about 
the class substance of uh, identity politics as sort of originally uh, uh, put forth here? Because I don't know, I just find it interesting that this is a phrase that in the United States, you'll hear, you'll hear everyone from the farthest right reactionary to progressive and revolutionary organizers and activists in the streets using, albeit generally in very different ways. But, you know, sort of looking at the uh, uh, socialist politics of uh, the folks who conceived of this phrase in this concept, I mean, uh, what role do you see sort of class playing within that uh, uh, that construct? And, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, elite capture, I, I just feel like that could tell us a lot about, I mean, frankly, the nature of uh, capitalism, particularly at this point. Yeah, I think class has to play a central role in all of this, both in kind of helping us figure out what the point was at the beginning um, or what the point might have been at the beginning versus how it's gone now. Um, and also to kind of explain why it is that progressives and people on the right and people further left and people further right all appeal to class in these different ways. So at the beginning, you know, like we've been saying, it's these black feminist socialists who came up with this idea in the first place. And part of the reason why socialism was in the mix, um, maybe why it was useful, is because capitalism is a big part of the glue that holds up all these different pieces of oppression together, right? Patriarchy isn't new, right? Sexism isn't new. Um, you know, religious discrimination isn't new. You know, even even racism at the time of the Industrial Revolution was, was not new. But a system evolved to connect all these things in a systematic way. And that was capitalism, which is, of course, built around these class distinctions, right? So there's a central place for class in the story of identity politics, not because everything is really about class, um, but because class and production and capitalism is the thing that organizes all the other stuff that we do, right? I think that's more like the thought. But, you know, it's come to serve this kind of ideological function, right, where a lot of the elite people and institutions using the terms identity politics now and talking about identity politics now are, of course, you know, towards the top of our class hierarchies. And so the ways of understanding identity politics reflect that. And that's an opportunity for people on the far right who are trying to delegitimize the whole bucket of things, right? They're, they're happy to point out that identity politics, as it's understood in certain places, doesn't take class into account in the way that it should, not because they think, you know, not because they want a more class-conscious version of feminism, but just because that becomes a tool to, to delegitimize feminism, to delegitimize anti-racism, to delegitimize the whole progressive radical way of thinking about identity issues and way of thinking about oppression. And the same is true for the center left, right? When they're trying to deal with people who are to their left, you know, they can point out class as this kind of um, rhetorical move to say, you know, these people talk about identity, but they don't really mean it. Again, not because they want to get to the roots of all of these social problems, but because they want to delegitimize um, some of the people who are talking about the roots of the social problems. 
So class is in there, whether we're talking about the right or the center or the left. Mm. And in our organizing, how do you lay out in your book how we get around that, how we how we deconstruct that thinking and organize uh, more effectively toward solidarity, toward a true people's movement that we desperately need at this point? I think it's the question of the of design. What are the kinds of organizations, what are the kinds of institutions pushing politics, whether it's progressive politics, radical politics, so on and so forth? Um, if you have movements that are led by, you know, that are led by non-elites, especially when they're led in a democratic manner, right, in, in a way that doesn't create a, its own sort of micro-elites, then I think you're likelier to get the kinds of political movements that are actually able to challenge power structures rather than just co-opt the rhetoric of challenging power structures. So historically, these have been, you know, these have run the gamut from, you know, labor unions that are militant to you know, actual liberation militaries um, to movement organizations that are um, that might be issue driven. Um, but all of these things, I think, have to have, you know, it's a question of how they're constructed and not just what they push for. The NGO lobby, you know, NGO civil society organizations that are dependent on funding from, you know, foundations and the powers that be. They have maybe a role to play, but if they're in charge, then I think what it really means is that the elites are in charge. And so, you know, it's a question of building power outside of, you know, asking for things from elites. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Professor Tai Wo, for joining us today. Definitely encourage people to pick up your new book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity, Politics, and Everything Else. We're going to move to a break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, April 28th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington. Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the yellow plus sign and type in 
by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ted Raw, an award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel, The Stringer. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And, you know, Ted, I was on your website a little earlier, uh, Rawl.com. And uh, I noticed that you recently uh, published a cartoon called I Suffered and So Should You. And it was sort of a take uh, off on, you know, uh, this whole issue of student loan debt and these people who, you know, for some reason just really, really want other people to uh, suffer through uh, personal debt and student debt simply because they were able to pay off their debt somehow. And it's a really sort of weird way of thinking. And frankly, I think uh, <laughs> not a great way to be considerate of your uh, uh, fellow human beings. But I'm sort of wondering what you make of that whole mentality like like what do you think drives that the fact that we have this uh proposition that would very clearly be of a real benefit to many many people in the United States that are dealing with student debt and somehow seeing it as a personal affront to you because you know you're just so well-rounded I guess that you were able to do it you know what I mean yeah, well-rounded and, uh, and and no doubt benefiting from the fact that student loans used to be a lot lower than they are now. I mean, the average student now comes out of a college, whether it's a two-year or a four-year school, with a lot more debt, even adjusted for inflation, than you know, people did in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. There's just no comparison, not to mention wages are a lot lower. I mean, it's just objectively a lot harder for uh, newly minted graduates or, or, or dropouts, for that matter, uh, to be able to pay off their student loans than it was. And it was pretty hard for us. I mean, I hated uh, having to pay off student loans. It took me almost 20 years to pay off mine. Um, it, it, was, it sucked. And I, I just don't I wish that on anyone else. I don't see, I think it was a stupid system when I suffered through it. And I don't think just because I suffered through a stupid system, anyone else should suffer through a stupid system. So, you know, if, I, if we follow that mentality to its logical extreme, then like nothing will ever get better or should ever get better for anyone. Because, you know, after all, uh, you know, we grew up before EPA regulations. And so people like my age were more likely, as I did, to get asthma growing up in the industrial Midwest. So, you know, should we now have more pollution in the air? Uh, you know, I mean, it, it sort of never stops. Um, human progress is predicated on the idea that we're going to want our children and grandchildren to live better 
than we did. And uh, it, it's it's just sort of a sick, selfish, sort of post-Reagan, um, highly individualist, anti-communitarian mentality. And, you know, you, you can argue against it and say, look, you know, even if you're just selfish, uh, it's to the benefit of society to forgive student loans for people who can't pay them off because, look, young people uh, have been putting off buying off buying their first homes. Uh, they've been putting off uh, buying their first cars. Uh, they, and if that stops being the case, if they're more able to buy things, that's going to benefit, for example, the elderly couple who wants to retire and sell their home and move into a smaller place and sell their home to a, you know, as a starter home to a young couple, maybe. Um, it's, it's going to benefit everyone. But I kind of hesitate to even make that argument because it shouldn't be necessarily, uh, you know, we shouldn't, I'm not in favor of student loan forgiveness because it's going to benefit me or the economy, although I think it will. I'm in favor of it because it's the right thing to do. And I suffered needlessly, and we have the money to do it, and it's bad for society to discourage education. I mean, there's only one, I think, good argument against student loan forgiveness, which is that the student loan structure in general subsidizes for-profit higher education, and it allows them to raise tuition willy-nilly faster than the rate of inflation. And so that's kind of a problem with the whole student loan structure. But the forgiveness of the loans for individuals, that's something, you know, society can afford. It's good for society. We should do it. And for the record, I did pay off my student loan, so I would not benefit from this at all. But I mean, Ted, don't you think that now with Joe Biden reportedly mulling the idea of maybe he should do a little bit more to cancel student loans and, I don't know, we'll see what that's going to look like. Wouldn't he actually be dismantling the system he put in place to make student loan debt a capitalist uh, 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 entrapment um, that, you know, nobody benefits from except for the corporate entities that he created the kind of system we're dealing with now to profit from? Wouldn't he be undoing his own work? He would be, uh, to some extent. He would be doing that. He he promised in his presidential campaign to forgive up to $10,000 of student loan debt <laughs> very much. Um, you know, uh, people like AOC and Bernie wanted to be closer to $50,000, which is more is closer to what most students owe. Um, and, you know, it is definitely, I'm glad you mentioned the word trap. It's certainly a trap. Uh, you know, you can't discharge it even in bankruptcy, at least the federal loans. Um, and it is, it is definitely a trap. I, one of the pushbacks I've seen is uh, older people, uh, you know, who say, well, you know, it's a debt. They, these kids know what they're doing. They sign these agreements, and an agree, a contract is a contract, and they have to pay it off. I mean, th- that's that's not even true because I mean, these are eighteen-year-olds, nineteen-year-olds, and twenty-year-olds. They signed this with predicated on a bunch of assumptions that they can't possibly know. It's based on the assumption that there won't be a, a recession or a depression when they graduate. That they'll be able to find some sort of job. It's going to allow them to pay off these loans. That the interest rate, which is floating on the on the student loan, isn't going to change radically because of 
some decision by the Federal Reserve Bank. I mean, it's, it's a leap of faith. They, they have no idea whether it's going to work out or not. So it's not really true. Uh, you know, that, I mean, basically, these days, to find even like a not even a particularly interesting or, or good job, you often need a bachelor's degree. The bachelor's degree is the new high, is the new high school's degree. So, um, you know, but in terms of Biden, I think he's kind of trapped because uh, he the Democrats really do need young voters. Young voters are part of the uh, the Biden coalition from the 2020 cam- Democratic campaign. And, you know, obviously, the uh, as Obama famously said, uh, you know, Democrats are going to get shellacked this uh, this November. There's no question. The only question is to what degree. And if they want to uh, mitigate the damage, they got they have to get as many young people to vote in the midterms as they can, because that will benefit uh, them, benefit them. But young people feel that the Biden administration and the Democrats haven't really done anything for them. They haven't delivered for them. They haven't delivered for them on uh, a student loan forgiveness or health care or uh, you know or or any or the um, environment, which is something that young people care about even more than older people. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it has to give them something. And uh, student loans seem to be probably the one place where you can get something done without asking permission from Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Ted, I, I think about, you know, this a lot in terms of, you know, Joe Biden and, you know, how he's doing particularly. I mean, he's not doing well, period, in terms of approval. And as you noted, he's doing particularly bad amongst young voters, which is completely unsurprising because nothing in uh, Biden's program is really speaking to their needs and the things that they've been interested in and the topics that um, have uh, uh, been directly impactful to them for years. I mean, there's a reason why uh, this element of the electorate was so excited by the Bernie Sanders campaign. It wasn't really Sanders the person. It was his program, which sounds, you know, the program of a Sanders, you know, you go, you know, other places in the world. I mean, it's not really that big a deal, but in a country as right wing as the United States, it felt like this, you know, very radical uh, uh, sort of thing. And, you know, it, it was at least threatening enough to where the Democratic establishment, you know, felt the need to scuttle uh, the Bernie campaign, not once, but twice. And so I just feel like if you're Joe Biden, if you're the Democratic Party and you are clear on what this issue is. And obviously he is because, you know, reportedly we see that he's, you know, toying with the idea, at least of some kind of student debt relief. If you want to save yourself and if you want to save uh, your party from getting shellacked, although, I mean, who knows if that's still possible at this point, although I, I reckon a lot can happen, you know, in a few months and in two years. But even still, if, if you are actually serious about that, then it seems to me that there are several things that you could do um uh even if by uh executive order but not only have you know the 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 young voters not really seen Biden address their needs they've also seen him completely capitulate to the right wing of his own party with Joe Manchin and uh uh Kirsten Cinema and so there's nobody it seems <coughs> excuse me amongst the democrats or I mean really in the political mainstream who is really fighting 
for these uh, uh, for these things that are needed, not just by young people, but I would say for poor working and oppressed people in general, whether it's debt, whether it's housing, whether it's hunger, whether it's health care, whether it's all of these things. You know what I mean? And so it just feels like if the Democrats continue to hem and haw and just kind of half hearted do things and float the idea of maybe doing something like this or taking these half measures. It just seems to me to like they're basically just digging their own graves deeper and deeper. It does seem that way. Um, you know, I'm not so cynical as to think that Democrats want to lose, but they do. Many of them seem willing to take that chance, even though I mean, like you said, anything could happen. I, I think it's it's looking bad. And, it um, and the thing is that they really don't have a lot of uh, Democrats don't have a lot of accomplishments they can really point to in general uh, to their voters. And uh, they haven't they they haven't even been able to communicate a positive message on the things that they have done right. You know, I mean, unemployment is officially low. I, I, the key of key word there is officially. Um, the you know wages are increasing. Those are both good, that's good, good positive things that have happened. Uh, you know, but they're not even able to communicate those. But um, they're not the fact that there's nothing really solid to say. Look, look at what we did. Um, you know, look what we're doing for you. Or even to be able to credibly say, listen, we're fighting hard. We're trying. Um, that's I think. An interesting difference between the two, uh, you know, major bourgeois parties is the fact that they don't have um, any kind of uh, their their tactics are very different. You know, when Republicans for four years or so were voting like every you know couple of days to repeal the Affordable Care Act, knowing that they were going to lose, but then they were able to say, uh, you know, go back to their 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 constituents in the red states and say. Look at us. We tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, 350 times. And, uh, yeah, we're doing our best. We're going to keep trying. Um, but Democrats, they count the votes. And if they're not sure they can win, they just re- they, they just don't even try, like we saw with Build Back Better, for example. And I think, you know, people just tend not to want to vote for a party that isn't even pretending to try. Yeah. And, you know, for folks who were listening to by any means necessary back um, during the last uh, uh, election, you you probably heard a number of occasions because I would consistently like ask our guests because I was really curious, like because the way that the Democrats were operating, it did seem like they wanted to lose. But that makes no sense. And I would ask this question, well, do they even want to win? And someone finally like gave me an answer that I thought sort of actually got to the meat of it when they say, well, sure, the, the Democrats want to win. They don't want to lose. They want to win on their own terms. But those terms are uh, frankly untenable when you're in a situation where the people that you're putting up as your obviously chosen person, whether it's Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, or what have you, when that uh, and the policies that they're putting forth just don't address any of the core issues that are of interest to the people who you say are your base, well, then it's going to make it difficult for you to lose on your own terms. They want the support of these groups without actually giving them anything. 
And so that is their terms. And so it's kind of, I mean, we see it's not impossible to win like that. I mean, Joe Biden is president of the United States. But as times, uh, you know, as time goes on and as conditions worsen, I have to, to wonder, Jackie, if this will, you know, if these same old tricks will continue to work. And, you know, they might to to some uh, uh, extent. But I just can't help but feel like we're reaching a moment where a lot of these, you know, same old lines and same old narratives that we hear uh, every election just just don't ring the way that they used to as folks continue to feel abandoned by this government. Yeah, I think that um, the the bloom is falling off the rose for a lot of people, particularly for a lot of younger people, for a lot of millennial voters and the voters who who are in that age category after that. And especially since when I saw uh, an article in some political publication that says the top 10 Democratic candidates ranked, you know, from one to 10 or whatever. And there was a picture of Pete Buttigieg. In the, <laughs> and I just said, you know what? They're doomed. And I think that if this man is any indication of being in the running of any of the top 20 contenders in the Democratic Party, everyone, I think, who were equivocal or on the fence about voting for Biden before uh, or the Democrats before, they're going to look at this same old slate of Democratic candidates because I'm telling you they have no one new and no one exciting. And no one hopeful (laughs) that is anything different from any of those regular folks. Everyone knows the gig is up. The question, of course, is always, are people going to settle for lesser evilism because they think that is the key to their survival? Or are they really going to do something different? That's the key. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know what I mean? It's just... um... It's just pretty wild how uh, these things continue to operate, and yet these folks, you know, really do continue to expect our votes. Uh, Don't give anything, but uh, uh, still expect for people to make that investment. And shout out to the Biden Means Necessary Chat, because people are pointing out that even if the Democrats lose, they don't because, you know, they still have the money and all this. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, we're, you know, uh, 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 Democrats and Republicans are just sort of two wings of the same ruling class. And financially and all of that, you know, they'll be just fine. And if the rest of us just sort of uh, continue to wane, well, I mean, I think from their perspective, the attitude is so be it. And they're more than willing to let that happen. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ted Raw. You know, Ted, over the break, I I was thinking because we're talking about Excuse me, young people voting and um, how, you know, progressive policies are just obviously verboten. 
by the uh, uh, mainstream of the Democratic Party. And, you know, one of the things that we always hear when it comes time for an election, particularly uh, a presidential election, is you could raise every relevant issue in the world and somebody will say, "Okay, well, fine, then just vote Republican or let the Republican win. And it's just this strange idea that people have. It's like when people talk about these um, very basic material needs that should be and very easily could be, I should add, uh, addressed by policy. And they're basically treated like petulant children, you know, throwing a fit or stomping around because they didn't get what they want. And it's like this association with, you know, I guess, uh, progressive politics and the things that come with it and a kind of uh, immaturity, basically. And this is really this is the the sort of insidious part of it. It basically su- uh, 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 suggests that it's unrealistic to actually want to get something from the people that you vote for. That is really the underlying logic. Why would you ever expect um, a politician to actually give you these very basic things that you need? You just need to go vote for them. And to me, it's a pretty sick and unhealthy and frankly poisonous way um, to think about both oneself and of uh, politics in general. But this is the kind of mentality that we see amongst so, so many Americans that will legit get upset with you if uh, uh, you talk about uh, or criticize rather uh, uh, what the Democrats do or, or don't do and what else they could be doing. You know what I mean? So, I mean, what do you think that really comes from, Ted? Like, where do you think that that attitude emanates? Is that, you know, what, what good, uh, uh, respectful adults do is vote for people who won't even pretend to do anything for them, right? That's what adults do. And if you actually expect them uh, to do something for you for uh, giving them your vote, well, then you're just being unreasonable. You know what I mean? Yeah, then you're not realistic, right? Um, In May 68, in Paris, the Situationist movement had this poster that I love that had the slogan, be reasonable, demand the impossible. And... Mm. You know, it is not unreasonable to demand uh, whatever you want from the political class. I mean, look, obviously, uh, if we demand uh, that every American should have his own or her own spaceship, um, that's probably not going to happen. Even a country as rich as the U.S. doesn't have enough money for that. But there's a lot of stuff that uh, we have plenty. We have enough money to provide in terms of, as you said, basic needs, education, health care. Uh, transportation, um, you know, uh, food, shelter, and so on. Um, And so they're choosing not to do it. And what's pernicious about the argument that, you know, well, we have to be realistic. You know, there's only two choices on the ballot. Uh, One sucks a little bit less than the other one. So vote for the one that sucks a little less, even though it still sucks. Um, You know, otherwise you're just not an adult. You're being a child. You're being petulant. And um, and the thing that's pernicious about that argument is that it sort of that it works. A lot of people who um, who ought to know better are, are taken in by it. And I think it's because um, as a you know as adults, as you live your life and you know you lose jobs unfairly and you maybe get uh, you know evicted unfairly and you have all the injustices of the world sort of pile up on you. You sort of learn that you have to live within the system, which you do. You have to live in within whatever system you happen to live under. 
And I think what gets forgotten is that you should be striving to change the things that you don't like about the system that you live under. Uh, you know, if you're, you're working long hours, you're trying to maybe start and support a family, you have all sorts of obligations, you have student loans to pay, uh, you have medical debts to pay, and you get more and more burdened and you lose your energy and your and your appetite for, for changing the system. And I think it's it, people just, they get tired, you know? I mean, it's, it's sort of like if you've ever been, like I think about, for example, uh, the Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island that recently had a successful vote. Um, you know, it was an ordeal. The, the people who started that union uh, got fired. They were out in the cold and in the rain under a tarp across the street. Uh, they were uh, abused, treated like crap in the media, uh, denigrated, um, you know, just ignored by even like the national labor unions. And it's but they persevered. And it's because they were youthful and energetic and they just refused to say die, which is how every change in history in the world has has positive change has occurred, right? It's always been, you know, whether you're obviously it's the struggle for racial justice or gender equality or uh, you know, trans rights, you name it, anything that has been achieved has been achieved through long, hard struggle. And I think unfortunately the thing about long hard struggle is it's long and hard. And a lot of people just don't have the willpower or the energy for it. And so it becomes appealing to say, well, there's these two parties, there's only two. We cannot allow to have three or four. Uh, and we you have to choose because this is the election and if you choose the wrong one, it'll be even worse. And you don't want that. You don't want it to be even worse, do you? And, uh, of course, the thing is you have to be kind of willing to say, yeah, for a short period of time, I'm willing to let it get even worse. Voters did that in 2016. Uh, a lot of Bernie voters decided, you know what, I'm just sitting on my hands. I'm not going to vote for, for uh, Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump gets elected, so be it. He did. And it worked. It pushed the Democratic Party in the 2020 primaries way to the left, to the point where you even had Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and other like right-wing Democrats saying that they supported $15 an hour minimum wage, and, uh, student loan forgiveness, and Medicare for all. They all, even Cory Booker, who's in deep with the bankers, had to say that. And it's, uh, I think that shows what's possible when you're willing to withhold your vote and not play into the two-party trap. Um, but it is apparently a lesson that needs to be learned and taught over and over again because it, has, it didn't stick in 2020 because people were so afraid of another four years of Donald Trump. And I think, you know, that's this year is different. There, you know, there's no way Democrats can make that argument and say, uh, you know, if you don't vote Democratic, we end up with Donald Trump again. But they will certainly use that argument two years from now. Yeah, we have a caller on the line here. Adam, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Uh, it's a very quick nod to say that your program is the entire reason that I am listening to Radio Sputnik all of those years ago when, when it started. So thank you for keeping up the good hard work. Uh, Ted, we're all a big fan. Uh, really, to expand on this conversation, I have a treasure trove type book to recommend and the author, Michael Hudson, I highly recommend that you get him as a guest if you're able to. The book is literally called And Forgive Them Their Debts. It 
talks about historical examples of debt forgiveness edicts issued as far back as, let's say, 2,500 years ago back in Mesopotamia and how it evolved over time into that idea of being an anathema in our current culture and society and how necessary it might be. And it's great that we're having a conversation now and even dredging something up from a recent memory hole, the 1950s, anyone brought up Catholic, Christian, the Lord's Prayer, the words, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Somehow, magically, that became trespasses. Well, that's funny. Well, thanks a lot, Adam. Really appreciate you uh, staying with and listening to by any means necessary for so long in times good and bad. I can't tell you thank you enough. I also appreciate you, um, you know, recommending this book by Michael Hudson, who is an economist for folks who don't know, also wrote a book called Super Imperialism. And uh, and yeah, you know, Ted, another thing I was sort of thinking about. Because we were talking, we began this talking about student loans, right? And and I've also sort of been wondering, it's like if you look at the United States, right? What kind of society would so encourage education as a means to success, but then make that education a burden? So in other words, we're told this narrative, and to the extent that it's true, I think is arguable. But we're given this narrative that you got to, you know, go to school, get a degree, and that degree will be your ticket to a, a quote-unquote good job. And, you know, if you keep your nose to the grindstone, you can settle into a nice middle-class existence. But like you say, I mean, it took you two whole decades to pay off your uh, uh, student loan debt. Ted. And there's a lot of people with uh, uh, stories like that. Uh, you know what I mean? And so how is it then that a society and a culture can at least superficially uh, have such an emphasis and put such value in education, but then make it such a burden? Like if you care that much about your uh, young people having a university education, why isn't it free? It's free in Cuba. You know what I mean? And so it's uh, it honestly just feels like one of many contradictions of the United States in terms of what it preaches to its people and what it actually makes available to those people. Ted, no, it is. It is a major contradiction, Uh, you know, and it's even just in terms of values. I mean, one of the foundational values of individualistic American style capitalism is individualism. Right. If you are uh, it's up to you. Uh, we're theoretically, of course, completely theoretically, every American is created equal, has the same opportunities. You know, obviously, that's not true, but theoretically, um, they, you know, anybody who works hard and is willing to uh, you know, just, just put their nose to the grindstone, like you said, Sean, and, and kick butt is going to be able to get ahead eventually. It won't be easy, but they'll be able to do it. Um, and that's, you know, it's the thing is, the, but one of the requirements for that is you need that college degree. And um, if, if only rich kids can go to college, well, then, you know, it, it takes the whole idea of the meritocracy and crumples it up. And it's a joke. And I, I think the model, I mean, I do think that the college model is breaking down fast because um, student loan debt is so out of control. Um, college tuition is, you know, at, at four-year private schools, 
is about $70,000 a year. Um, it's not, uh, you know, not at all uncommon for uh, someone to emerge with a liberal arts degree from a four-year school with $200,000 in debt. Um, you know, 20 years ago, if you had $200,000 in student loan debt, or let's just say $100,000 in student loan debt, you probably had a medical degree and a law degree to show for it. Um, you know, that now it's just a bachelor's degree, which is, you know, good for maybe a $45,000 a year job or an unpaid internship somewhere. Um, so, you know, the numbers don't add up. They don't make sense. And um, the system... You know, they're, they're requiring things that most people can't get uh, anymore and can't afford. So it is, I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, it's kind of a variant on, on, on Marxist theory, you know, on Marxist theory of, uh, you know, the, the crisis of overproduction. In this case, we have a crisis of uh, overproduction of educational degrees and diplomas. We, we, we are producing way too many BAs and, and uh, you know, masters and doctorate degrees that no one can use. I mean, if, you know, sometimes I've been approached uh, about uh, serving as an adjunct at various uh, universities, and it's a joke. Like, they will pay you $1,000 or $1,200 to teach a semester course. The most you probably can teach is maybe three so you can do six a year. So I don't know about you guys, but I don't know how I'm going to make it on, say, 6000 or $8,000 a year. Um, and, and no one else can either. So they end up teaching at, three, at an average of like three colleges each, driving around, doing a crappy job for their students that makes them ashamed of their own work. And, you know, it's exploitative and, it's, uh, and, it's, and, it's, <laughs> and it rips off the students again, uh, you know, the future students. So it's a pyramid scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme that is falling apart now. Yep, a complete hustle. Uh, we have another caller on the line here. Ben, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, yes, uh, I have a uh, question, and uh, I uh, listen to you all all the time. Uh, I value your opinion, and I'm learning a lot about what's going on with between Russia and Ukraine, and I'm becoming getting to understand uh, Russia's uh, 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 point of view. Uh, but my uh, question for you is this. I have two questions in one, and that, those questions are, what is the possibility of the statistical possibility of the statistical probability of this war leading to World War III. And my second question is, uh, how do we get the nations of the world to prevent this from hap happening? I value your research and I value your opinion, and I'll take it off the air. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much, Ben. We appreciate that. Uh, next on the line is Brandon. Tell us what's on your mind. Hey, guys. Um, I had a question for Ted. Um, just on the Elon Musk Twitter thing. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, go right in. Okay, okay sorry. Um, so Elon just posted like an hour ago, if you go to his feed, and he has a little uh, lazy stick figure comic. Um, it's just three horizontal lines, of three people standing on each line. And the right one is for the right wing, center is for the center, left is for the left. And he basically is making the case that over time, the left has gone from reasonable uh, whatever to running left and further left, while the center and the right have stayed exact same position. 
And, uh, you know, I just think it's obviously pretty ridiculous. And before that, I was kind of neutral. I didn't really think it was a big deal whether we had it. But now it's kind of, to me, looking like it's not going to be much different if you're left on Twitter under Elon Musk's uh, name. So just wondering Ted's comment on that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Brandon. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to uh, hear from you again soon. Uh, Jackie Lukeman, your thoughts? Um, you know, for the first caller, I, you know, I got to say I appreciate, um, you know, you listening and you learning um, more and becoming more, you know, being more open minded to understand that there is a whole backstory of history and interaction and U.S. EU NATO skullduggery going on in the region using Ukraine against Russia and the historic reasons that that Putin said what he did about Nazif- denazification of Ukraine, that there is a historical, tangible and very recent eight year civil war bombardment of ethnic Russians in Ukraine after the 2014 coup uh, backed by the U.S., reason for him saying that. It's a real thing. But his question I thought was really interesting because, I, you know, I can't I can't give a statistical probability for, you know, World War Three happening. And, and for me, I, I'm looking at World War Three as a nuclear confrontation, because I, I don't think we can look at world war in the context of the way we generally think of them. Right. Because honestly, World wars have never been wars where every country in the world has been involved. World wars have always been the the two wars that were called world wars were, were countries that were largely European or their allies uh, fighting against each other for domination over the resources of other countries. That that's basically what. So so I don't I don't think we're going to see a a kind of hot war like that over. Uh, uh, Ukraine or coming out of this situation with Ukraine. What I do think we'll see is more of what is going on right now. The U.S. uh, bullying other countries, its allies, and some of those allies going along, but others being resistant to continue pouring money and weapons into Ukraine to compel Ukraine to continue to fight this proxy war against Russia that it really cannot fight without the endless supply of weapons that it gets from the U.S. and its allies. Um, so I, I, I don't think of World War III as a conventional war. I think of World War III as, as a nuclear confrontation. I can't give you a statistical probability of that, but I can tell you that I know that the idea of avoiding a nuclear confrontation is probably more on the minds of Russian officials than it is on the U.S. on you on you of U.S. officials. Because remember, this is the country. This government is the country that dropped two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end a war that was already over, largely to send a message to Russia to let them know, look what we've got. So I, I, I think that's the best answer I can give you for that. And, and how we avoid that, that's our job. We have to do that. This is where the people must come in and demand, how is this war stopped? That the arms and the money and the support ends for 
uh, any more military support to Ukraine and the disbandment of NATO. That's where this conflict and every other conflict ends. And this is why we organize and talk about what we do on this show, Sean. Ted Rowe, your thoughts? Jackie, it's hard for me to to change or amend or add to anything you've said. I 100% agree uh, with everything you just said. Uh, I think it's, I mean, I do think it's the one, I mean, we have one good thing on our hands, which is, uh, look, even the reckless uh, leaders of the United States and and the European allies uh, don't want nuclear uh, ICBMs flying across the Atlantic Ocean in either direction. Uh, Nobody wants that. The problem is that the U.S. seems to be willing to chance it uh, more than Russia Russia is, certainly. Um, And this, uh, but you can already see the beginnings of sort of how this might come in for a landing. I mean, there's been some more sober-minded Europeans, in particular, and even some American top former top officials who said, you know, we're going to. Russia's too big to ignore or marginalize. We're going to have to talk to them. Uh, you know, it's we're going to have to bring this in for a landing. Uh, this is, we can't let it get too far. I think it's pretty clear that Ukraine will end up partitioned in some, you know, West versus East kind of way, uh, de facto or officially, I think de facto probably, um, and it'll end up as sort of the, the biggest frozen conflict zone in the former Soviet Union, and it'll sort of be left at that uh, for the time being. It is a, um, the current situation, though, is untenable. And one hopes that, uh, you know, there's one thing that that bothers me, though, is the mentality that, uh, well, we can, we're going to talk, we'll start, we'll stop talking to the, we'll start talking to the Russians after the military activity kind of comes to an end. Um, I think, the whole point of talking is maybe we can, uh, you know, ratchet down the military activity uh, with a, you know, with a ceasefire or at least, you know, talking should happen yesterday. Um, there should be close contacts between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, you know, Ukraine and, and, and should be part of the talks, but they need to. They need to discuss things. And, you know, I mean, Russia's demands are easily meetable. Uh, by Ukraine, uh, they you know because Ukraine basically is not qualified to join NATO under NATO's own rules, uh, which is say that there can't be a disputed border for an applying state. So because they can't apply anyway, uh, and a lot of European countries didn't want them in, it should be easy enough for Ukraine to say, okay, all right, we won't apply because it doesn't make any difference at this point. They're kind of not arguing about anything really, and um, you know. In terms of the other stuff, separate status for uh, uh, the Donbass region and uh, acknowledgement of what of the uh, annexation of Crimea. Again, that's reality. That's just what it is, and Ukraine should be able to accommodate that. Um, it, this is, this has gone on. You know, it, it it seems at this point it's becoming unnecessary, and it's ridiculous for us to be even having to talk or think about the possibility of World War III uh, at this stage. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ted Rawl is here. And uh, I wanted to give uh, some responses to our callers as well. Uh, first off, I want to thank uh, Ben again for listening. You know, we we learn a lot uh, as well just by merit of uh, doing the show. And uh, I would also be hard pressed to, you know, put a number or a percentage of the likelihood of World War Three. I mean, I can tell you it's a lot higher than I would like uh, personally. But um, in truth, I think we have to sort of look at the circumstances that would lead to that and what it is that we actually mean when we say uh, World War Three. Right. And this was sort of the whole issue around the no fly zone. Right. And Americans uh, supporting this idea of a no-fly zone without, I think, really understanding what it is. And even so-called journalists uh, in the U.S. really pushing for the Biden administration to do, quote-unquote, more in Ukraine. Yes, you're sending all this money, but you need to do, quote-unquote, more. Uh, you know what I mean? And so if if that were to happen, the thing about a no-fly zone, right, is that it has to be enforced. And so, you know, that would mean sort of direct attacks on, you know, Russian aircraft and things like that, which then could send us up a ladder of escalation that could bring us to a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia, two nuclear armed countries that could have potentially devastating, catastrophic. Really, it's not an exaggeration to say that it could have apocalyptic uh, impact on humanity and the earth. And I feel like I should also raise the fact that this is what the U.S. wants. This is the only reason why this uh, whole proxy war with Ukraine is even happening because of this uh, NATO expansion and encirclement of Russia that's been happening steadily since 1949 uh, when NATO uh, uh, first began. And because the United States sees uh, Russia as a, a potential competitor, as a U.S. imperialism is on the decline, they think the same thing about China. Don't think they forgot about them, right? And so uh, it's the short-sightedness, frankly, of elements of the ruling class in the United States to where they are really willing to risk a war of mutually assured destruction if it means that they can hold on to power for just a little bit longer. And you ask the question, well, what can the world, the nations of the world do to avert this? Well, I feel like the nations of the world have really sort of made their voice heard uh, in a number of ways, you know, whether we're looking at some of these different uh, uh, UN votes. I mean, the U.S. and the West will tell you that the quote unquote world or international um, community, as they put it, is basically with Washington. I don't think that's the case. Um, when we see, you know, even countries that are close to the U.S. like India not going along with it in deference to their own national interest, I think that's uh, uh, saying something. But I think what really will make all the difference is for us 
those of us right here in the United States, in the imperial core to hold this government responsible for its role in this war in Ukraine. Because as Ted mentioned earlier, these uh, Russian security interests that they talked about for a while and were very clear about and that I think are eminently reasonable. You don't have to be the president of the Vladimir Putin fan club to see that these are reasonable and understandable security concerns. This was swatted away by Washington, who knew it it could possibly lead to a war in Ukraine. And that is precisely what happened after the Russian invasion. It sort of effectively uh, uh, brought in, coalesced, if you will, a lot of the imperial powers under the banner of the United States, lessening some of the contradictions uh, between them and giving rise to a whole new sets of factors and things that I think uh, uh, will be rippling through global politics for some time. But I want to reiterate, if we don't want, if we want to stop another war, if we want to stop World War III, we have to be active. We have to build the anti-imperialist movement here in the United States and continue to uh, uh, fight this government that is so responsible for so much of this. And uh, the other caller asked about um, Elon Musk's uh uh, you know, uh, tweet or whatever, which I did see. I saw it earlier today. And I mean, um, I mean, it's just something that a reactionary would post. I mean, I, I'm not even you know what I mean? I mean, to 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 suggest that the issue at hand is that the quote unquote left went too far left. And if you note on that last line, the little stick figure above it, it says woke, quote unquote, progressive, mm. because quote unquote, woke is the bane of a reactionary's uh, uh, existence. They hate whatever that word means. They hate it more than anything. You know what I mean? And basically making the point, well, of course, people are going concerned because you, you know, you left people are so crazy. You know, it's just ridiculous. I don't know any halfway serious person who, you know, accepts any sort of political analysis from Elon Musk uh, of all people. But that's just how it is. And I also want to say real quick, to be honest with you, there are even people who consider themselves socialist and communist who find themselves constantly braying about, quote unquote, wokeism and stuff like that. Let me tell you something. If, if you consider yourself any kind of revolutionary and you really feel like this woke issue is some sense. Uh, thing that really needs to be struggled around, I humbly suggest that you walk outside, soak in some sun for like 20 minutes, eat a fresh piece of fruit, and just think it over, man. Just rethink that whole thing. And once you get a taste of reality and what outside is like, I, I think you might uh, change your mind. I think. Uh, but we're going to squeeze another caller in here. Sanchez, tell us what's on your mind. A good day to you all. Uh, while you're on the subject here of nuclear weapons, I'm wondering if you guys heard about the new uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are nuclear armed. They're called the Sarmat that they just tested in Russia over the weekend here. They're still in testing mode, but they should be ready to go for deployment coming the fall of 2022. So we have a big, ugly monster staring us in the face, and Vladimir Putin will... uh, We are testing his patience. And once these intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles go online, not only can they reach the the EU, not only can they reach the UK, but they can reach the U.S., 
and they have a, a range of about 22,000 miles. This is something, now, I don't know what NATO has. I don't know if the United States has some secret weapon up their sleeve, but this is a game changer, folks. This is something that we cannot top. So NATO better, NATO better get its act together, finish with this madness that they're doing, or or whatever's going to happen. But by the fall of 2022, if we, we, we even cross our T's wrong or dot our I's wrong and piss Vladimir Putin off, all he's got to do is push a button and boom, that's it. Will he do it? I don't know, but just the fact that they're they're putting in these ICBMs with nuclear tips, up to 15 of them per missile, that's some serious stuff we're talking about here, folks. Yeah, definitely. Appreciate you calling in, Sanchez. I mean, I think you're right. We're in a very dangerous time. And I think that maybe people in the United States have some idea of that, but not really. And uh, I mean, it's true that, you know, uh, uh, Russia is going to sort of have these, you know, missiles and things like that. Now, personally, I don't think that the Russian government would launch these sorts of things, you know, unprovoked. But even still, the fact that uh, uh, these things are being developed and tested and things like that is obviously a part of a deterrent factor for a possible confrontation with uh, NATO or the U.S. You know what I mean? And so, uh, again, just to make the point that it's U.S. imperialism that brought us to this point. Imperialism is the core contradiction here. That is what is, uh, uh, you know, continuing to uh, gin up this war. I didn't even mention that, you know, today Joe Biden asked Congress for thirty three billion dollars to fund humanitarian military aid to Ukraine through September of this year. And this comes as Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, telling the World Bank that his country needs up to seven billion dollars a month. A, m- a month in uh, a support for this war. And I also want to throw this in here. I don't know if y'all saw this, but I mean, the United States actually left $7 billion worth of military hardware in Afghanistan following the uh, U.S.'s withdrawal. And some of that equipment has now been sent to uh, Ukraine. So you talk about the grift aspect of it, you talk about the hustle aspect of it. That is all uh, 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 a part of this. But, you know, I want to state this plainly because of the moment that we're in. It is a dangerous moment. It is a historical moment that U.S. imperialism has shown itself to be the threat to humanity on the globe right now. Period, point blank, end of sentence, close the book. That is it. That is the core contradiction. This is what is uh, uh, exacerbating food shortages and driving up fuel prices and making life almost too expensive to live in this country. And my friends, I know that it can almost feel like too much sometimes. And that it seems like every day all you hear is bad news, another bad thing happening. But the only way to turn that around is for you to get involved, for you to join the movement. You don't have to just sit back and let the fire burn. No, you can be a part of the effort to put the fire out. It is a people's movement that is going to pull humanity back from the brink of oblivion because the ruling class. The capitalists, the bourgeoisie, the 1%, the rich folks, whatever you want to call them, right? They are more than happy to send us all to complete destruction 
if it means that this system and the power they hold in it holds in place. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Ted Rawls, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.